Welcome to Looks Like New on KGNU's It's the Economy. I'm Bailey Troutman. This is a show that asks old questions about new technology, even addressing questions that should have been asked a long time ago. We join you on the fourth Thursday of every month on the radio, or you can listen online as a podcast. Looks Like New is a production of the Media Enterprise Design Lab at CU Boulder. The last year has been wrought with trauma, illness, catastrophe, mass shootings, and so much more. In times of physical distancing, canceled events and gatherings, and online shifts in daily life, it's probably safe to say that most of us are feeling quite exhausted. So how do we process collective and individual trauma? What have we done to maintain feelings of connections with one another? For me, I've noticed heightened and intentional use of social media, FaceTime calls with my family who live in other states on my iPhone, scheduled phone calls with friends and family, and, uh, of course, a massive reliance on Zoom for not only educational purposes, but also for reunions with friends across the country. I've virtually attended conferences, happy hours, uh, and interviews. And in addition, I, perhaps like many of you listening, um, have even noticed some of the creative works that have emerged out of this time as well. For instance, I started my own podcast as a way to document my life for people interested, to share updates in addition to my quarterly blog posts that I I have on my own blog, which I've made since undergrad. I've seen the ways that online yoga and fitness groups have helped me feel connected to things that I enjoyed in person before the pandemic. I've been impressed by the creativity of artists, musicians, and entrepreneurs as we all weather this together while apart. On this show, we talk a lot about topics and questions related to governance, environmental ramifications of technology, and so much more. But today, in light of how much technology and media have become part of the everyday in the last year, we might still wonder why people going through traumatic moments in their lives turn to certain types of media. Can technology help us process, heal, and make new worlds for ourselves? I'm mindful of all the ways that I have changed and grown in this last year, and I think about how I've been coping and surviving. What role has technology played in all of it? Today, we're going to have a conversation about the role of digital media and moments of trauma for support and healing. Dr. Samir Rajavi is an instructor of media studies and the director of technology influence practice at the University of Colorado Boulder. Dr. Rajavi has commitments to bridging public scholarship, the academy, and social justice advocacy with the community. In addition to countless board memberships for nonprofit organizations, Dr. Rajabi's research focuses on the meaning-making affordances of digital media. Her forthcoming book, All of My Friends Live in My Computer, Tactical Media, Trauma, and Meaning-Making, explores how people experiencing trauma turn to social media as a form of healing, meaning-making, and reimagining new worlds. In 2019, Dr. Rajabi also gave a TED Talk about how trauma unmakes the world and the language of caring. I'm thrilled to have the chance to have this conversation today, so welcome, Dr. Rajabi. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here with you. So we'll just kind of start back at the beginning a little bit. Um, I know that your background includes work about digital media, trauma, and healing, so I was wondering if you could share a bit about what brought you to study these together. Absolutely. So originally, I was in my master's program interested in how women in developing countries um, were navigating really, really hard stuff. And one of the things I saw was that women who were specifically in parts of East Africa victimized um, through this sort of like epidemic of rape and war were finding ways to connect really under wraps through digital media and finding ways to connect with each other. And I thought that's really compelling because the support infrastructure was not there at the time in those countries because 
there was not really any infrastructure. So I'm specifically referring to East Congo. And some of this historically happened with the genocide in Rwanda. And so in my research, I found that these women were really creatively engaging technology. And so that's what I was learning about. That's what I was studying. I was going to Africa and volunteering with these women and trying to learn from them and learn with them and figure out what their real needs were. And if, if those were things I could help facilitate. And then what one of the things that happened when I came back from my uh, volunteer work in Africa was that I realized that I just needed to know more. Um, so many of the people were really, really well-meaning, but we were kind of reproducing these cycles of inequity by dropping in, helping for a little bit and, and you know, dropping out, right? Like coming back out and lifting back out of these spaces. And that's not fair to anybody. And so I decided where do people know more? And without knowing anything about a PhD, I decided to just, I was like, well, I have a master's. Like, can I get another master's? I don't know how this works. And so I just like signed up for more school because that's normal behavior. And then um, when I was getting my PhD, I was diagnosed with a brain tumor. And I realized that nobody around me was saying things that I wanted to hear. People were saying really nice things or people were sharing their own health experiences but I was like, this sucks. I need somebody who also has a brain tumor to talk to. And so I started going online and I realized that much of the gestures I was making were similar to what these women were doing. When you don't have people to communicate around you, you use communicative tools to really creatively look for that. And I started to extrapolate out to other traumas. I was witnessing people having major accidents, people being diagnosed with cancer. And I just started seeing this pattern in the way when we don't have a structure or framework in our physical world to help us make sense of the things that don't really make sense within our social structures, we go find it. And, and so I wanted to understand how that worked and how I could, how I could understand it so that if there were people who didn't know how to find that, I could help them deploy it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that again, like it, it resonates so deeply with with me and just things that have happened, you know, growing up. And then, you know, just like the ways in which I've personally done that too, where it's like I've turned to spaces where I'm like, I need to talk to someone who can understand exactly what this is at this moment. And I think it's fascinating how you specifically have looked at this digital media uh, as this space of, of that happening, which kind of brings me to my second question, uh, which is really, I know that you've touched on like maybe why people are drawn to those digital spaces, but what makes a digital space trustworthy? Well, I think trustworthy, trustworthy is a hard thing. One of the things I think I've found in my research is people are less thinking about what's going to happen to them and if they can trust the outcome, but they're more thinking of like what they need, right? And they need to be seen and they need their voice to matter and they, they need to feel camaraderie. I think it's also, if you are already one of the people in the world, lucky enough to have an internet connection and access, right? And all the tools you need to gain access, it's sometimes easier, right? Than seeking out a support group and, and going somewhere or, being so vulnerable face to face with someone, which is, you know, arguably harder in some ways, maybe easier in other ways, but harder in some ways. And so there's low barriers to entry. But what makes them trustworthy is, I think, the people in them, right? You're not necessarily looking for a public platform where you can make a statement on the state of trauma, right? It's not a, it's got politics in it, but it's not about performing politics. And so there's less likely to be people who are policing the boundaries of what that can look like. So naysayers, people coming from a completely different perspective to articulate things falsely. It also depends how you think of trustworthiness, right? Because a lot of times people in specifically medical communities online share their own experience. And we have to be careful to note that that, that experience is not a medical diagnosis. It's not something you should base your own treatment decisions off of, right? So if you're going there for community and camaraderie, it there are spaces that exist because the people that opt into those spaces are people that need them to exist. And so there's not really people that go troll those communities all that often, right? There are within every community debates, right? Like I have a benign type of brain tumor, but it had catastrophic effects for my life. Every rare side effect I got. And all I did was share my story. And there were those people in uh, Facebook communities, for example, for people with my type of tumor, 
saying, you're making our tumor seem too scary. And I don't like that. And I don't like my family to see that. And, and all I said to them is, you know, I'm not trying to speak to your experience. I'm trying to speak to my experience. And so we can either find the through lines so that we can connect and feel less alone, or our stories might be divergent enough that, that we are not the same community for each other. Right. And so there are spaces where people are, are so intent on protecting themselves that they might feel defensive or feel scared. Um, but in general, like for example, with the brain tumor social media community on Twitter, which is a community that meets the first Sunday of the month to, to chit chat, uh, on Twitter around topics and they bring in care providers and they bring in patients and caregivers. Um, there's not really anybody in the community that's not supposed to be in the community or that doesn't need this community to thrive. And so that's what makes it trustworthy is the people that opt in. Wonderful. Yeah. I, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, and that that would create and foster that collective coming together, collective interest in, in seeking that support would unite everyone. And I, I think that that I love the point about, you know, you're there to kind of get your story heard and to feel like maybe validated, to feel supported, to feel connected to people who can understand in ways that maybe other people that you see physically can't, you know? So I think that that's wonderful. And that also brings me to another question because I know we've talked about like digital media and I've said that word and you've mentioned specifically like Facebook groups or Twitter groups. So when you're thinking about these spaces, what platforms are you most looking at or like what do you define as as digital media? Well, I specifically in my research tend to look at Twitter and Instagram, sometimes TikTok, um, but really it can be any platform where people are allowed to communicate creatively, right? So, and that doesn't mean that there's not gatekeepers in those communities. There absolutely are. But in these spaces where we can creatively share things with both people we know and people we don't know, there's a possibility to find other people who have a similar story to share and maybe also need to be heard. And, and that act of hearing each other and seeing each other and valuing each other can be really rewarding. But I think, you know, digital media changes so quickly. Really, I'm here thinking of social platforms, social networks, right? And I don't really study Facebook. There's a lot of privacy stuff that gets into studying Facebook, but I also think it's a... Um, it's a space that hasn't allowed the creativity in terms of ways of communicating that some of the other platforms offer um, in terms of immediacy, connection, visibility, because because it's, it's more considered a closed network of people um, that you self-select into your network, whereas something that you're, if you're a public user on Twitter and you share publicly, potentially, depending on everybody's algorithm, right? A lot of people could see and engage that. And so you're more likely to find find people who need you, right? And it gets back to the trustworthiness because there are so many things to be mad about online. It's very, you know, why, why would somebody self-select into this community of like caregivers and patients, you know, for no reason? I'd I haven't seen it. I haven't seen anybody like come in angry, you know, to these communities or like really mad. But I'm specifically, I look at twi Twitter, Instagram and TikTok. Yeah, I think that you're you're so right. And when you are thinking about looking at these spaces, are you focusing on like following, like do hashtags, is that how, you know, you connect yourself with the community or how do you like, you can tweet about certain content, for example, but is it something where you have to use a specific hashtag in order to kind of opt in to those audiences? Or how does that connection work? Are there pages you follow or, you know, accounts you follow, stuff like that? So for most of the health communities that I've studied, there are specific hashtags that people have deliberately developed for those health communities. So um, for breast cancer, um, depending on the type of breast cancer, there's um, hashtags, but there's BCSM, which is breast cancer social media. There's BTSM, which is brain tumor social media. There's a hashtag brain tumor Thursday. Um, so hashtags is, are, are a really great way, especially on Twitter to, to formulate that community. Um, it's, it's more fluid on Instagram in terms of people are just less consistent around. It's a less deliberate community creation. It's not about let's gather at this time and this day to talk about this issue. It's more self-selecting or self kind of disclosing your participation in a community. Like the, the work I'm doing right now is on uh, pregnancy loss and I'm studying the hashtag pregnancy loss awareness um, and also pregnancy loss remembrance day. And those are two hashtags. So 
on Instagram, you see less interaction, but people kind of sharing their vulnerability by sharing a shared experience. But I'm also kind of looking at that, the same dates I looked at on Instagram, I looked at on Twitter because they they sort of coincide to people forming these communities of, of comfort and care. But also the date period I'm looking at happens to be the date range where Chrissy Teigen um, experienced a pregnancy loss and Meghan Markle experienced a pregnancy loss. So within Instagram, specifically for Chrissy Teigen, we see people doing that community formation in her comments, right? So it just depends on what you're looking at. But for Twitter specifically, um, looking at hashtags is a really great way to do it. In terms of TikTok, when you look at a couple, then you keep getting fed more, right? And so you start to see people's interactions and then you can try, though it's hard to do, to trace where those TikToks go when they leave TikTok and they get shared on Instagram and other places. But that is... um, that is a methodological question I have not yet answered in terms of the best way to to tackle that quagmire. No, that completely makes sense. I know it's like I, I love again that you've highlighted that that difference in community formation even on the platforms. And I think we'll get to a question about more of that side of things in, in just a moment. Uh, but for now, we will shift to a break and then we'll be right back. So hold your thoughts. Um, you're listening to Looks Like New a show that asks old questions about new tech. Stick with us. We'll be back soon. Welcome back to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio. We've been speaking with Dr. Samira Rajabi about digital media use, trauma, and healing. So I love that you've highlighted kind of how you you know, happened upon this area of research, how you actually go about conducting and studying and looking at these communities. And so it kind of brings me to another question, uh, which is, you know, in the last year, we've had quite a bit of trauma happen collectively, I would say worldwide. Um, You know, even in certain communities, it's just impacting so much. And I was wondering if you've identified any new interesting digital trends that most of us were possibly turning to or, you know, practicing as we were physically distancing ourselves or we were forced online in so many new ways? I mean, I think the current moment explains why we've seen such like a creative explosion in places like TikTok specifically, like people are really creative and they're funny and they're interesting and they're honest and they're sad sometimes. Like there's such a beautiful tapestry of like humanity on there. There's also like any online space, the ugliness and and the harshness and the, the things we want to be mindful of. And we want to course correct, you know, hopefully as a society, but I don't know that I've seen new digital trends, but I have seen people sharing differently in those trends. So one thing I've noticed with COVID specifically, especially as I've been kind of keyed into a lot of healthcare communities and patient communities and caregiver communities is people go to um, places like Twitter or TikTok specifically to navigate the ambiguity and the uncertainty that they're trapped in. And so there's this concept of ambiguous grief where we're, we're grieving for something that hasn't happened, right? We're grieving for the loss of of this future we thought we'd have, the plans we thought we'd make. And people don't necessarily have a framework or a meaning-making schema to know how to navigate that. And so people do go online and, and share those feelings and other people sort of validate them or say, I hear you, or I feel the same way, or... A lot of times we do see a little bit more antagonism in those spaces of like, well, your problem is not a real problem. Like this is a real problem. And so, but we also see that co-occurring with a lot of empathy. So it's, it's a, it's a strange thing to look at in terms of like, there's no one clear thing that comes from it, but I've seen people shift the way they're using social media from like, look at all these pictures of my cats to like, look at, I don't know, I don't have a cat, I have dogs, but look at all these pictures of my pet, right? Versus look at look at how I'm navigating this uncertainty, right? We've also seen uh, a renewed attention and increased attention to uh, advocacy efforts, right? Like we, ha- we are in a per- particular moment where Black Lives Matter has, has found um, momentum online and in real life. And that's tragic and it's horrible because the events that have led to that happening 
are horrifying, right? And we and we want to call into, um, we want to call out that tragedy, right, for what it is, and and those murders, right, for what they are. But um, in terms of what we see in digital media, is we see people with potentially more time to engage and more ability to engage, choosing to do so, even when they maybe don't feel capable or able or comfortable doing so in an offline space. And while a lot of people will say that's virtue signaling or that's slacktivism, it's not nothing to amplify a cause in really particular ways. And so I'm seeing just people, people are using these tools to navigate uncertainty in ways that as somebody who is always on the lookout, which makes me sound like, you know, weird, but as somebody who is like always on the lookout for the worst tragedies online, that's messed up, but that's what I do for a living. I'm seeing a shift in how people are trying to make sense of their world. Yeah, that again, you just keep saying these things and I'm like, that's totally like why I was turning to to these different platforms even like I, I also remember like back at the start of, of lockdown, I was completely alone. Like I lived completely alone and all of a sudden cut off from everybody and like all of the the things I was doing every day. And I found myself searching for for this connectivity on like social media platforms. And like, how do I navigate this world now when I had all this stuff planned out or you have everything, you know, you think you're like, oh, I'm you know going to graduate or like whatever it is in your life. And then all of a sudden you're like, what, like, how do I, like, what am I, you know, what am I going to do? And I remember it being comforting seeing that collective coming together around it of like, we all are experiencing this uncertainty and and how do I make sense of that world? And like, how do I imagine a future now that everything just keeps changing so rapidly? And I, I feel like, you know, you've mentioned these, like the Black Lives Matter movement and like all of this stuff that I've been noticing too, online. And it, I think it's wonderful in a lot of ways. And so I I appreciate how you've highlighted that, that sense of, I don't know, like seeking out almost like, how do I process what I don't know how to process and doing it through these platforms? Yeah, because the, the thing I think we don't realize collectively as a society, or we don't think of is like, mediation is all meaning making, like going to the media and doing something, it's it's to create meaning or engage in some kind of meaning. But mediation doesn't only happen through media tools like technology, right? Like when when we go to a coffee shop, when that was a thing, and we talk to each other, I'm mediating myself, you're mediating yourself. And through that conversation, we are creating meaning. We are producing meaning. We are part of a creative act of meaning making. I've personally believe that that's what mediation is, right? And so then we go into social media to mediate. We're doing the same thing right? There are affordances and foreclosures. Like there are things it allows us to do and things that keeps us from doing that are good and bad, right? It's not a perfect world, but we are still, you know, taking our bodies and our minds and our thoughts and our experiences, and we are mediating them alongside others to be part of this creative act of producing meaning, right? And when something horrifying happens, like everybody says, there's this, you know, deadly pathogen in the air that you can't see and you don't know if you have it and it's super scary and it's it's actively killing people and it's 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 terrifying. So suddenly all of the ways you've mediated your life to that point, like I will go to work, I will come home, I will, you know, I will graduate, right? Like you said, or, you know, they stop working. It doesn't work anymore. So of course we need to to work together to mediate new new meanings, right? And so of course we're we're going to be drawn to these spaces that let us at least momentarily feel like we're with other people. Like that and that doesn't dismiss the downfalls of social media and the insecurities that can cause because these are curated spaces. These are um owned by big corporations that have incentives in, ter- in terms of turning profit and advertising, right? So we have to be aware of those things as users, but also as big communities and as structural systems we want to call into que- question, but we're just mediating ourselves. That's that's what we've always done. That's what we'll always probably do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I love that so much. Um, and I, I love too that you've highlighted this element of the big corporation and and the ways in which we've seen headlines recently about Facebook and like these certain groups coming under fire essentially at the highest levels of, of government, at least in this country, about like questions about their reach and what they are. And that brings me to a question where 
again, we've talked a little bit about this in, in past episodes of the show, but there's a lot of those ongoing debates about moderation and policy on social media. Um, and I was wondering how those bear on the communities that you study. Like, do you see impacts of of these decisions or potential decisions in the future having maybe negative impacts or at least impacting ways in which everyone connects and engages? I haven't seen any kind of sub substantive impacts on these communities as of yet, but these are tend to be really small communities. They tend to be... Um, kind of communities of care. And so they're not these communities where we see, you know, the rapid spread of false information or disinformation. They're not communities that we see a lot of bullying or hate speech, um, at least not the ones I've shared. That doesn't mean users that participate in a particular community, right? Like you might be very passionate about um, a particular type of healthcare diagnosis but you also might be sharing fake news, right? So in terms of like moderating individual users, I don't know where the balance is there. I do agree that this sort of like the, the, the spaces will regulate themselves and we don't need to have any responsibility fall back on this free speech rhetoric and doctrine is lazy. I think it's not, it's not a real answer. Um, these are these are spaces that are owned by companies. And so I think it gets to this larger conversation that I think society has yet to actually have in a meaningful way of like, are these spaces public spaces? Is this a public sphere? Is this a space for public conversation where, where um, anything goes? But also we need to recognize that free speech in the United States doesn't mean you can say whatever you want with no consequences. There are still consequences to your speech, right? And so that should hold true online also, right? Sure, you can say whatever you want, but that doesn't mean that saying something that causes harm won't carry social, cultural, political, potentially legal consequences. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, yeah, I just, again, I echo everything. I just completely appreciate that you've shined light now on this. The dynamics like of social spaces, especially like, social media platforms, for example, and how, yes, there's this big corporation. Uh, there's also billions of users and everyone is being motivated to use these spaces as in certain ways. And, and we understand that. And especially when you're thinking about the communities you study, again, I, I do appreciate how you've highlighted the importance of just why people are there, like what motivates people to come together, especially around these moments of, of trauma in their lives. Um, and also, too, just like thinking about how do we nuance that conversation around policy, governance, like individual, like accountability, like all of this stuff. It's it's very complicated. <laughs> well, and I tell people that opt into these spaces, right? Like somebody is making money off your story. And it's probably unless, you know, you're on Instagram and you're an influencer and you've you've figured out how to work that game. Right. It's probably not you. Right. Like there was you know, Nathan had this m movement to buy Twitter, right? With a, with a bunch of other people, because we are effectively mining our life experiences. And in terms of these communities of trauma, the worst things that have happened to us as free labor for companies to make money off of, right? And when you look at it in that view, you're like, oh, crap, like that's not not ideal, right? But two things can be true at the same time. We are giving free labor away. We are, we are mining our stories away to, to let people profit off them. So it, it becomes a cost benefit almost, right? So what are you gaining from that? Are you gaining a sense of belonging? Are you getting a sense that somebody cares about you? I mean, I know you saw my, my TEDx talk. I, I met somebody in these communities and they came to my wedding. They came to my, you know, they took me to breakfast before brain surgery, right? It was a real space of connection. And so I carry that alongside this awareness that I have to be mindful that if something goes sideways, I knew what I was getting into when I decided to share my story in this space, right? There could be consequences of that. There could be, um, you know, a feeling of exploitation at some point, right? And right now I feel that I get more from this, this community that I participate in than then I am afraid of those consequences. Although that might be like famous last words, right? Like, who knows? I don't actually know. 
No, I I love that too. I I also have been trying to figure out how to be more vulnerable. And like I've I've seen in my own like curation of feeds this – like what you were talking about earlier about how people are sharing more now and like creating awareness around different things. Like not always showing the like perfect sides of life and like knowing that there's profit being made off of that, but rather like, hey, I'm actually going to be real with people today. I'm going to tell them – what I've struggled with, or I'm going to have this vulnerability because I think I wish someone told me these things, you know, or that I knew someone else out there was also feeling like this. And so that also gets to this idea of like this connection, right? It goes back to that. Like, what are we seeking from that? And I love that you've highlighted it. It is a cost benefit analysis, you know? And I know that when I share things on my podcast or in my like different social feeds and it is something I think about where I'm like, I am willing to share this right now because for me, like maybe that's my priority. And so also reminding us of like the agency of users. Uh, I, I love that nuance of the conversation. I really do. Well, not every post too has to be like, let me bear my soul to you, right? There's a, there's a place for that and a time and space for that and a particular community where you might want to place that, or you might want to place it openly on Twitter and, and see what comes of it. Right. And there's, there's uh benefits to that. There's also risks to that, right? Like there are stories of people who, who bear their soul in these spaces and whether it's the algorithm or people's engagement, nobody engages. Right. And that can feel really demoralizing and that can feel really scary and hurtful. Right. Just like being rejected offline might feel right because we all like to say that we're people who don't care about the likes and the engagement but that's then why do they exist right we we play into this and these companies are are smarter than we think right and they they've created these systems very deliberately but the other thing is like some days your post is just like you know my instagram has devolved into like literally only pictures of my dogs like i don't I don't want to engage in the harder conversations in that space. That doesn't mean I'm not having those conversations anywhere, right? And so it's, we kind of take advantage of the affordances of each platform in a particular moment for a particular purpose. And and oftentimes we might not even realize that's what we're doing, but I found there's more engagement with the hard stuff on Twitter, even though it's it's more deep engagement rather than like more, like there's, maybe three comments, but they're sincere comments from people within this particular community I've opted into versus, you know, 150 likes, but I still feel totally alone. Right. And so we have to be mindful of how we're engaging. Right. And that's like a, not to be a super nerd, but that's like a component of media literacy, right? It's like, we have to be critical and mindful of how we inhabit these spaces and all of the structural constraints of them, but also what we want to get out of them while knowing we're not totally in control of that outcome. Mm, Yes. Absolutely. Again, yes. So much, so much yes to that. Um, And I do want to also talk about your book, the new, the book coming out. Um, I'm very excited personally to hopefully acquire a copy and read it. Um, But I've read the title and, and your bio and I was just wondering can you share more about this project and like, how did you know it was going to be a book and what do you hope readers will be able to take away from it? So the project actually started as my dissertation and it looked a little bit different back in the day. That was like 20, I finished my dissertation in 2017, which like, what is time? Nobody knows. Um, but, uh, it started as a dissertation and I was really just trying to see if there was a through line between these really disparate, different communities that had experienced or mediated traumas. And so this was, you know, well before the pandemic or anything like that. But I'd had my brain tumor, I'd gone through 10 brain surgeries, all while studying trauma and going to grad school. And so I was just seeing these, these these other communities I was part of, having their own experiences of trauma and, and wanting to understand what that looked like. And so I started just taking the traumas I was seeing in my own communities and trying to see like, do they operate in the same way? Are the things people are doing similar? And while the traumas themselves are really distinct and different, the way people navigate the online space and sort of exploit those affordances of these platforms in order to create these kind of communicative spaces where they can express their voice seemed to be consistent across the cases. And so I studied a a man who shared a photo story of his 
wife who had breast cancer and how that viral, it was on like board Panda or something like that got shared on all these like viral listicle sites, but people's engagement with her story and his mediation of her story was really, really real. And it was about meaning making, and it was about seeing themselves in her story because they'd maybe had breast cancer, or maybe they'd lost somebody who had breast cancer. And then another one was about an athlete who was um, paralyzed as part of a CrossFit competition. And the the way the community sort of rallied around him, but also how they navigated that weird tension between like, it's a big corporate sponsored neoliberal thing. And, and he's one person, right, was really compelling. But ultimately, it gave him I think, based on my observations and other people who cared about him or cared about um, disability and fitness, uh, this space to articulate the trauma of, of feeling invisible in this space until he brought visibility to it and all this stuff. And so I just sort of started mining those cases. And then uh, when I was trying to turn that dissertation into a book and update the case studies, there had been a case study about Iran that I, I felt I'd written about enough. And um, the travel ban happened. It was it was 2017. That's not a trauma to one person's body that people are then engaging with. But I started to realize the way people were talking about it, it was definitely traumatic, right? And so the baseline definition of trauma I use is you have this these assumptions or this schema of meaning making, right? Like I will go through the world, I will go to work, I will come home, I will do so safely, I will go to sleep, I will wake up the next day. And for a lot of these people who had immigrated to the United States, gotten potentially green cards or other things, they thought one of those assumptions, right, is that I can travel, I can travel freely, this could be my home, right? And suddenly there's this legislation that's like, nah, it can't be, not really. And that's traumatic, right? That meaning-making schema getting broken, that's trauma. And so I started to develop this idea of, of symbolic trauma, right? This trauma that comes from the symbolic structures of society that govern our interaction, right? So it's not just coming from one structure, it's coming from this like meta structure of society and how that traumatizes people. And so at the same time as that, my mom was diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer. And so carrying these sort of dual traumas because my family's Iranian American of my mom's diagnosis and not knowing if it was if there was going to be hate crimes against people that looked like me and the other people on the, the list of countries that were banned right it it helped me see that a lot of the the coping mechanisms looked the same and a lot of the ways people were navigating these really disparate hard things um, exploited the same affordances of various platforms, right? And so I started almost um, collecting stories in order to make these communities legible so we can see them, so we can honor them, so we can care for them, so we can care about them. So we recognize what's really great about these communities, what might be challenges that these communities could overcome to make them more able to bring more people who need it in, more diverse, more capacious, right? And so the whole point of all of my work, the only reason I keep doing it is because hopefully it can almost form like a roadmap for somebody who goes through something hard to say, like, this might be a way for me to form a community. Um, so that's what the book is. It's not a lot of people are like, what is this going to tell me about like life in a pandemic? And I'm like, I don't know yet. Right. Something, hopefully. Right. But um, the fact is, is our suffering is really palpable now in society because it's it's hitting a lot of populations in really hard ways, but suffering is not new, right? And our engagement with trying to understand it is not new. So I think a lot of the ways that people navigate it and are creative in doing so can, can stand to teach us about um, how we might navigate our own suffering for a long time. Yeah, which again is incredibly powerful. Like you've mentioned now, probably more so I mean, not to say now more than ever, but it is extremely salient right now, and it is so immense and and painful and real. Uh, and I love that you've you've been able to kind of identify this as like something that is happening, and that even though your work isn't going to say like here's how to navigate a pandemic, uh, it, it is going to offer probably some, at least in my mind, you know, some moments of connection where it's like, oh maybe even to stop and reflect on how we've navigated this last year, uh, which 
again, like I, I personally love to do those things, like just to stop and say like, whoa, whoa, Bailey, like what, what have you been doing? Like what's been going on? How have you been handling this? Like let's check in with ourselves here. But but definitely extending that to understanding that like, again, like suffering is not new and how people are using digital spaces. Um, yeah, it's super powerful. When I think too, like people are more likely to do those check-ins, right? Like the what's new with Bailey, what's happening, right? Um, check-ins because it's it's becoming more socially acceptable to do so, right? Like the the sad reality that we live in, at least in the United States, is that the hamster wheel of capitalism sort of made a lot of people suffering invisible, right? Because the 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 attitude is sort of like this presenteeism power through the wheels are going to keep turning. So if you're suffering, you're either going to be left out, right? Of, of this like major aspect of society, or you're, you know, you're going to have to keep running on that wheel, regardless of how much pain you're in. Whereas now, especially because for a period, a lot stopped, there was sort of this, this reckoning with, we can't just shove this suffering down. It's too big. It hits too many people. Right. And I think we see that across the board, especially as we see communities that are more affected by this suffering, black communities, uh, Latino, Latinx communities, right? All of these different communities, trans communities, right? Communities that were already marginalized before that this sort of like social notion of like, we just power through. So you either get in or get out doesn't work anymore. And so we are sort of seeing a collective societal meaning making, right? Like remaking of our world because we have to. And I think it's an opportunity, but it's also a really scary moment because if we don't take advantage of creating more capacious social meanings and collective meanings, then we're at risk of reinscribing those traumas on the very people that have been have been fighting for their rights for so long, right? So um, yeah, it's an interesting time to be a human. You're listening to Looks Like New, a show that asks old questions about new tech. Stick with us. We'll be back soon. Welcome back to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio. We've been speaking with Dr. Samira Rajabi about digital media use, trauma, and healing. So I know now we've you know talked about your book, we've talked about your work, um, and I did want to take a moment really to talk about that 2019 TED Talk, uh, just because you did share so many of your own experiences um, about comments that people said to you while you experienced these traumatic times in your life, and. I was wondering for listeners, you know, like what advice would you give to them, um, to those who are either experiencing something traumatic personally or know someone who may be? Um, and then like we can talk more about like what is a language of caring and like how do we incorporate that into our lives? Well, I think people really mean well uh, when they say things to people who are suffering especially if it's a suffering they don't understand. But I think it goes back to the the last thing we were talking about of like, everything has to keep going and things have to progress forward. And this forward momentum can never be lost. And so when somebody gets this like life altering, catastrophic diagnosis, rather than being like, let's sit with this for a hot sec and figure out what this means and how we feel about it and what we want to think about it and how we want to navigate it. We're like, don't worry, you're going to be okay. It's going to be okay. You're going to overcome it, right? And so like overcoming and triumph seems to be the only way through. And we've learned that, right? We didn't come up with that on our own. We learned that through the media, through society, through television, right? Through the rhetoric we have, through through doctor's offices, right? Like um, I mentioned in the TED Talk, there's like this ad in the hospital that's like, a woman and as the elevator doors close, it's like a close up of her face. And it's like when her heart quit, she refused to. And I'm like waiting for the elevator and I'm like, hold the phone, y'all. Like, uh, is that for real? Because like people's hearts stop. That doesn't make them quitters, right? And so we we trap people in this narrative of overcoming at all costs. And then so what that actually does to people who are sick is they feel like if I can't do this, I've done something wrong. I didn't fight hard enough. Whereas if if, you know, somebody in your life said, this horrible diagnosis is is on my table and and I'm really, really scared. Rather than just promise them they're going to be okay, because you don't know that, 
or tell them they have to fight through it, right? Which puts a lot of pressure on them is just say, I'm here with you, right? I hear you. I see you. I will listen for your needs and I will try to meet them. Mm. And I, I mean, you can tell people, I hope that you will be okay. I wish for you to be okay, you know, but that's better than like, don't give up the fight. Right. And it doesn't mean we don't want to urge people to be, you know, to, to try to, to situate in these hard moments in terms of like bravery. There's been moments in the hospital where I've been in horrible pain and I've wanted to give up. Like, you know, there was, there was one time where I was getting this, like, it's called a lumbar cistern again, Graham, I I highly don't recommend it, but you get a lumbar puncture and they put this radioactive fluid in you and then they hang you upside down to see it, to let the fluid spread around and to see if the, the, it's complicated. Anyway, that's not the point. The point is nobody likes getting a spinal tap, I would argue. And, um, I was already in pretty chronic pain from repeat brain surgeries over and over again. And so, um, when I got there and there had been a scheduling error and the doctor wasn't there and I was in horrible pain. And then they had a doctor I didn't know come do a lumbar puncture on me and, and, and take me through this really painful process. And then they couldn't find the right medicine and all this stuff was just going sideways. I started crying and I was like, I can't do it. I'm done. This is it. I don't care what the results of this test would would be. I'm calling it right now. Right. There was a lady in the next room who then the doctor like magically showed up right then with the medicine because he was like, don't leave. Um, this, this woman who'd been suffering with her own cancer handed my mom a necklace that said, be brave and keep going. Right. Which is extremely powerful and meaningful. So I'm not saying that stuff doesn't have its place. Right. But if that's our default, if we're not even willing to have the conversation of like, what does it mean as a patient to have agency, to choose how you want to live your life, right. To choose what treatments you want, to choose how hard you want to you want to pursue a cure, right? Because for some people, cures are just not possible, right? And that's not those people's fault. That's not their doctor's fault, right? So I think it's a lot about just listening, listening for what people are saying and what they're needing and meeting them where their needs are, right? Mm. And and it's uncomfortable, right? The other thing I would like highly recommend not doing is somebody's like, you know, I have a brain tumor. Like one time, this very lovely human was like, I totally know how you feel, And I was like, oh no, did you have a brain tumor? And she's like, no. Once I fell off a horse and I broke both my ankles. And then I was like, oh my God, that's horrible, right? That's like horrifying. And then she like took her shoe off and went into great detail about her feet and her ankles. And I really want there to be a space for that empathy. And I want to give her my empathy. And so I think it's about knowing the time and the space. And it like, so maybe she could have said like, you know, I hear you and I see that you're suffering and I've suffered in different ways before. And maybe at some point we can swap stories of our suffering. Right. Mm. But like releasing this urge to like fill the uncomfortable space with words and just sit in it. Right. Yeah. So much of this is like, it's like that narrative of resilience almost where it's just like, everyone's like, be resilient. This is going to make you stronger. Like you're going to come out of this like blah, blah. Or like, I know exactly how you feel when it's like, these are just things where it's like, when you hear that, you're like, you know, that perhaps there is that well-meaning intent behind it, but it doesn't land. Like it, it really isn't something that's going to make me feel like, oh, wow, I really feel hurt. I really feel validated. I feel supported in that moment rather than just like, oh my God, well now I've got to be like this like super warrior fighter or else I'm going to let people down or I'm not going to live up to this thing that I'm supposed to believe I'm supposed to fit into. And it's just, oh, I I, I appreciate that you've highlighted like, don't do that. Like those are just things that we should not do. <laughs> not great. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, look, resilience has its place, right? But the best definition I've found of resilience is, is from these scholars that talk about resilience as unfinished, like it's in process, right? So we have this narrative of sort of like, you're sick, you you treat it, you get better and overcome it. You either go back to normal or you become better than you ever were. Whereas if we, if which is like, that's nice, but also like maybe not that realistic for a lot of people, right? Because especially as time goes by, we get older, our bodies change, like bodies are complex and, and they're not infallible, right? Like our bodies will lose ability over time. That's just part of the deal. And so if we think about resilience as unfinished, like we're, we're sort of in this constant negotiation between 
overcoming the really hard stuff, but also uh, sitting with it, grieving it, grieving the life we thought we'd live in order to try to be present in the one we get. That to me is a much more beautiful vision of overcoming than just creating this like fake metric of normal, whether it's old normal or new normal, and trying to fit into that, like screw normal. Let's just be people who are trying the best to be in our lives, whatever that looks like. That's such a beautiful note. And I think that's a perfect one to wrap this up on. Like, I love that. Like, let's just be people, you know, like let's, let's just exist. However that looks like, you know, however that is day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute, operating with grace, with ourselves, with other people. I, I think that's really beautiful. And I appreciated how you highlighted that. So, so lovely. I like, it was it was so nice in that TED talk, especially, and I imagine your other works as well that I will hopefully be able to to check out soon as well. Um, but yeah, I just want to thank you again for for sharing, uh, for coming on here today, uh, for all of the things you you brought up, you highlighted, and I guess to conclude, like, is there anything you would want, like any last thing you'd want the audience to take away potentially to remember uh, beyond what's already been said? I mean, the world is tough, right? It's full of, you know, inequity and and structural fights that we have to fight, right? But in the meantime, in our day-to-day, like just take 10 seconds to 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 let yourself think and and have empathy for yourself and for other people, right? Like I just my like most valued um quality is like when people are nice. Like, I just love when people are nice. Like, I'll start crying if somebody's just genuinely nice. And because I love it so much, like, like that's the energy I'm trying to bring, right? And like, that's the energy you brought. So I just want to thank you because Bailey, you're like super chill to talk to and, and really fun to engage with and super smart. So thank you. You've been listening to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio, a show that asks old questions about new tech. We've been speaking with Dr. Samira Rajabi about digital media, trauma, and healing. If you would like to find out more about Dr. Rajabi's work, visit samirarajabi.com. I'm Bailey Troutman, today's host of Looks Like New, a production of CU's Media Enterprise Design Lab. You can find out more about our work at colorado.edu slash lab slash medlab. If you liked what you heard, please spread the word about our show and consider leaving a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Leaving positive reviews will help our conversations reach more listeners. We would love to hear your comments or guest ideas, so you can reach us by emailing medlab at colorado.edu. I hope you'll join us for another conversation next month.